Well, good morning. Man, it is so good to be back with you guys. I love doing this. What a good thing. I, you know, spending the last week in Israel, every morning I wake up and I'm like, yes, I get to do this all day long again. This is, and the, it's just the coolest thing to come home and to feel the same way about you guys and getting to be here together and to worship together and to, to get into God's word. Man, it is a cool thing. We, we had such a good trip. Such a, it was so good that my suitcase decided to extend its stay. <laughs> and um, yeah, if I believe the, the, the tracker that I put on my suitcase, because I knew this could happen, it's actually having a, a little rest stop in San Francisco now. So I, I have hopes that next week I won't be wearing this. Um, <laughs> You know, I've been told that, that many years ago, there was a tightrope walker named Charles Blondin, and, and he would often set up his tightrope across the great Niagara Falls. And huge crowds would gather to watch him make his way across this tightrope tight rope suspended over the falls and back. And, you know, he'd go across, he'd make it back, and the crowd would just erupt, amazed at this feat that he had accomplished. And what they didn't know is he was just getting started. He would go back and forth with this immense balancing rod, but then he would carry a table and a chair and a teapot and a cup out there. And he'd sit on the chair and he'd have a cup of tea at the table. And I can't even imagine how he did this, but he enjoyed a nice cup of tea out on the tightrope. <laughs> he'd do trick after trick, just amazing the crowds until finally he would get to a place where he would take a wheelbarrow full of water across the tightrope and back. And then when the crowd would finally quit cheering, he would dump out the water and, and he would call out to the crowd and he said, do you think that I could take a person in my wheelbarrow? Oh, and the crowd would go nuts. Of course he could, of course. This guy could do anything. And they would be cheering and yelling until he said, so who's first? <laughs> you know, it is one thing to believe theoretically or theologically or conceptually that Jesus is alive, that the resurrection is reality. But it's quite another thing to live like someone who has encountered the risen Savior. You know, where we pick up this morning at the very tail end of the Gospel of Luke, at Jesus, if you remember, he has been crucified, and he has most certainly died. He was placed, if you remember, there in the tomb. The stone was rolled into its place. 
As the other Gospels tell us, it was sealed and it was guarded. And yet, and yet on the third day, at the third day, at the breaking of dawn, an angel rolls back the stone to reveal that he is no longer there, that our Savior is no longer dead, that he is risen, that he is alive. And then he begins to appear to various ones of his followers. And yet, and yet, according to John chapter 20 there in verse 19, we read that when they gathered, they gathered with the doors locked out of fear for the Jews that as they gathered, the mood, the outlook of the disciples uh, was not one of boldness and celebration, but rather they were scared. Uh, they were fearful. Uh, they were nervous of what might come. And that's, that's what, where we pick up in our text this morning. And so I want us to, to look at this together. Will you do this? Will you grab your Bible? And open up to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at the very end of Luke's gospel. I, we're going to pick up in verse 36. And I'm going to encourage you to do this. To stand. I'll read our text. Very much would like you to uh, follow along in your own Bible so that you can see what it is that it says. Beginning in verse 36, Luke writes, As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why do doubts rise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. And then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried <coughs> up to heaven. 
after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. Let's pray. Jesus, we just read that for your disciples, you opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. God, I pray you do that for us this morning. I pray that the more than just being here, more than just hearing and agreeing, that, that we would comprehend, that we would be changed. God, that you would impact us by what it is that we read in your word this morning. God, we ask that you would change us. That we would truly meet with you here this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So it's Sunday evening, that first Sunday, that Resurrection Sunday. It's the evening after the morning when they found the tomb was empty. Where are the disciples and what are they doing? Well, they've gathered together, but they've gathered in fear behind locked doors. I imagine if they had blinds, the blinds would have been closed. Well, they're excited. They're excited about the things that they've heard, but it's with hushed voices that they are passionately sharing their stories about how Jesus had appeared to Mary and to some of the other women, and then to Peter. And now they've been joined by two others. Remember them. They had been on that journey to the little village of Emmaus. And while they were walking to Emmaus, Jesus joined them and explain to them all that the Old Testament scriptures had proclaimed about him. And then in the midst of their talking to each other, look at verse 36, as they were saying these things, he himself, Jesus himself, stood in their midst and he said to them, peace to you. <laughs> but they were startled and terrified. And they thought that they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? And so here are the disciples, and they are tremendously excited about what it is that, uh, that the others were sharing with them and what they themselves had experienced they were so excited because Jesus was alive. He had defeated death. He had appeared to some of them. And then, and then he was right there with them. Apparently, locked doors and walls 
are not a problem for our resurrected Lord, okay? And now, but understand, that doesn't mean that he is immaterial, that he was a ghost. At 1 Corinthians 15, it's very plain that both our Lord and our future resurrection bodies will be absolutely physical, glorified, but physical. And so, in the midst of all their talk about the fact that Jesus truly was risen, in the midst of, uh, of sharing with each other the stories of having encountered Jesus that morning, Jesus himself appears among them. And what is their response? Well, of course, they're startled. And the staff here are very kind to me. I startle very easily. And so when they're coming over to my, uh, my corner over here, uh, they will stomp their feet as they walk or they'll tap the wall as they come because if they don't, I just about wet my pants when they show up in the doorway. I just, ah! <sighs> and so they're very kind to me usually. And they, they warn me that they're coming. And so you imagine if Jesus just suddenly appears, of course they would be startled. And I guess maybe you could even expect or understand that they might be terrified. But it's odd, isn't it? It's odd that even though they now say that they believe that it is true that he is alive, even though this is what they want more than anything else for their Jesus to be living, yet at the appearance of Jesus, what does it say? They are troubled. They're troubled. They're doubting. They're doubting what they've heard from others. Oh, I think probably even doubting what their own eyes have seen. I think, I think that what is behind this is that believing in the concept of the resurrection is easy. Because all that changes when we believe in the concept of the resurrection is our profession. It's what we claim to believe. But when we have actually experienced the risen Jesus, it demands that we ourselves and, and the living of our lives be radically changed, transformed from the very core. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone believes in Christ, if they have given themselves to Christ, if anyone has encountered the risen Savior, then he says they are a new creation. And the old is gone. I think that's what troubles us. And the new has come. Yeah, there in Israel, we, we did a baptism in the Sea of Galilee. We didn't do it in the Jordan because the Jordan's a muddy mess. Um, but there one night at our hotel in the Sea of Galilee, we went down to the lake and in front of a bunch of um, young adult Israelis, um, went down into the water. And it had to be an odd 
scene for them. I mean, imagine watching this if you have no context for what's going on. I mean, some people go out in the water and then one of them grabs somebody and pushes them under the water, <laughs> holds them there, and when he, when, they, when he lets them up, they're all excited about it. They give him a hug and everyone claps. And it's, what is going on? Well, it's, it's this whole picture of the death of the old self, the death of the old life, and being raised into a newness of life. And that is more than just believing in a concept that someone can be risen from the dead. It's a change of the whole power and force behind the living of our lives. And so as Jesus appears amongst his disciples and he sees that their hearts are troubled, he begins to address the source of their anxiety. Now understand this. It wasn't his presence with them that caused them to be anxious. It was their lack of faith. That's what caused them to be anxious. It was their unbelief. So Jesus begins to address this problem of unbelief, but he, he doesn't do it by, by hyping them up emotionally or, or, or by uh, pouring out guilt upon them for their, their weakness. But rather what he does is he simply presents them with opportunity to engage with the evidence. Jesus says to his disciples, look, look. Touch, see, comprehend the reality that I am alive and I am with you. Look at verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see that I have. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus says to these guys, examine the evidence. Touch the reality of his risen body. See the truth. Comprehend the veracity of the resurrection. You know, that's exactly what we spent every day doing last week as we were in Israel. <laughs> this group that, that went over there together, we spent seven days in a row every day looking at one piece of evidence after another. We went there to see the evidence of the real people, the real places, and the real events of the Bible. Understand this. Understand this. The Bible is not fairy tales or myths. It's not stories. It is reality. You know, skeptics like to, used to like to question uh, whether uh, people mentioned in the Bible, like Pontius Pilate, whether they were even actually real historical figures. That was until archaeology began to confirm each of them. Those who went on the trip, we went to Caesarea Maritima, where there a stone, a, a, a stone was discovered that was dedicating a building project to who? To Pontius Pilate. 
We went to the Herodium where his signet ring was discovered. We went up to Tel Dan where a, a, a victory still, a, a basically a victory proclamation of one of Israel's enemies was found and where the, the enemy of Israel proclaimed it was here that I defeated the king of Israel, speaking of the northern kingdom, and the king of the house of David, speaking of the southern kingdom of Judah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skeptics used to say, oh, David, that's just a myth. That, that's just a fairy tale to make them feel better about who they are until we begin to find the evidence that they were real people who lived in real places and who lived through the real events that we read about in Scripture. Everywhere we went, we saw evidence of Herod the Great Herod the Great was a maniacal guy. He was a maniacal builder. Uh, he, he, he built stuff everywhere he went. All of these, these huge palaces and fortresses from the Temple Mount uh, to the aqueducts of Caesarea Maritima uh, to the fortresses of Masada. Oh, and then the Herodium just outside of Bethlehem. He wanted a fortress uh, within reach of Jerusalem, but he couldn't find a, a venue large enough for it. He wanted to have a view of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is above and Bethlehem is below. Um, so he told his builders, you see that hill over there? Pick it up and put it on top of that hill over there and then build me a palace in the middle. And that's exactly what they did. And not only real people, but real places. Uh, visiting places like Caesarea Maritima, where Paul was imprisoned, uh, where he sat before Felix and Festus. Places like Capernaum, uh, the, the town of Jesus, the place where his ministry was centered, where he healed Jairus' daughter, uh, the, the synagogue leader. And we saw the, uh, the, the foundation of that first century synagogue there in Capernaum and, and where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And we saw uh, the remains of the home of Peter's mother-in-law. Even little places like Nazareth. In that day, just a little teeny tiny village tucked away from the road up in the hills. You know, a village so small that in that day, though they would have vineyards surrounding the village, they would probably only have a single grape crushing area where they would press the, the juice out of the grapes. You know, there in Nazareth, they've discovered a first century um, uh, wine press and, and to see this and to know you know Jesus very very easily could have been as a young boy one of those who stomped the grapes we saw the evidence of real people we visited the real places we even saw the evidence of the real events the things that scripture says took place we walked through Hezekiah's water tunnel together. The tunnel that Hezekiah had carved underneath the city of Jerusalem in order to move water from the Gihon Spring, which is outside the city wall, to the interior of the city at that time, to the Pool of Siloam. We went up to Tel Dan, uh, where Jeroboam had built an altar to a false god. And we saw it as well in Bethel, where he did the same thing. 
Uh, we were there in Megiddo where we saw the remains of the Canaanite pagan worship and we saw the evidence of King Solomon's many, many horses and chariots, which, by the way, he wasn't supposed to have. Everywhere we went, we saw evidence of the things that Scripture tells us are reality. You know, you don't have to go to Israel to see the evidence of the things that Scripture says are real. All you have to do is take a look at what the Word of God says about us, about our own hearts, about our propensity to sin and deception and to hurt each other. What the scripture says about our need for forgiveness and cleansing and love. All we have to do is to take a look in the mirror to see that what scripture says is truth. And so Jesus points his disciples to the evidence. And when they were slow to comprehend, he didn't get frustrated. He, he was patient with the slowness of their comprehension. Are you glad for that? I'm a little slow. It takes me a little while to catch on. I'm so thankful for the, the patience of the Lord as he points them to the evidence and they're still not getting it. Look at verse 41. He says, but while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy. Mixed bag for them, right? They're, they're thrilled to see Jesus. And yet there's this doubt that lingers and that there's just this turmoil within. And Jesus looks at them and says, listen, would it help if I ate something? I mean, do you have anything here? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And it encourages me that if we will look at the evidence that he will draw us to himself, that he will show himself to us. Here is reality. He is seeking you more than you would ever seek him. Uh, we've all said that foolish thing of, well, I was, I was searching for the Lord or I was really searching for God. Yeah, kind of like a blind man, you know, you, you, searching for God, really. You were wandering around lost. So we, we went through Hezekiah's water tunnel and some idiot thought it would be a great idea for us to go through in pitch blackness. And no one argued with me, so we did it. It seemed like a great idea in the moment until I find myself in the pitch black in a tunnel that is maybe five feet tall, water up to my knees, and I'm feeling my way through the passageway, and there are certain places where there was a false corner, and so you feel the wall fall away, and so you turn to go around the corner, and I find myself just surrounded by rock, and 20 people behind me, and I'm just thinking, breathe, <laughs> breathe, think, and, and desperately feeling for another way. 
I was feeling my way. I was searching for the exit. But I'll tell you this, if there had been more than one way out of that place, you guys would be mourning us today. <laughs> it's like us searching for the Lord. We're lost. He searches for us. Jesus puts it this way in John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. He is drawing you to himself, always drawing you closer and closer. It is his obsession, his desire to draw you closer yet. Now, in verse 44, Jesus changes the focus from looking at the evidence to remembering the prophecies. He says this, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you. In other words, remember what I told you before, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Oh, I love that. I love that right there. That, I mean, that's what we need to ask for all the time, right? He, he opens their understanding, not just that they could comprehend what it says, but that, that they would be changed by it, that they would be impacted by it, that they would understand its relevance and its importance and that, that, that they wouldn't just read it and be the same, but they would read it and be changed. And he makes reference to the law and to the prophets, and to the Psalms. What do they have to say about the Messiah? Well, they told us that he was coming. In the law, in Deuteronomy 18, 18, Moses records God's words. There God tells Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. From among their brothers, I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command them. Beginning to talk about the coming of the Messiah. Of course, the prophets, the prophets spoke again and again and again, giving every detail about the coming of the Messiah. Everything from in Isaiah chapter 7 about the virgin birth, Isaiah saying, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or like Micah chapter 5. It tells us that the Messiah would be born in little old Bethlehem, not in the seat of power in Jerusalem or Caesarea Maritima or Rome, but rather Micah says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be a ruler over Israel. Speaking of the house of David and the Messiah would come from the house of David. Even the Psalms point us to Jesus. Psalm 118 speaks of, of his rejection. It uses this image of, of the capstone or the cornerstone. It says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the cornerstone. You, know, you go through Israel, everywhere you look, there are arches. 
There's arches everywhere. I mean, every time you turn around, there's an arch. And, and I'm not talking about golden arches uh, that, that lead you to hamburgers, but rather ancient arches uh, that supported everything that was built uh, from the arches built by Herod that support the Temple Mount or the... Or, or the, um, the um, Jet Lake, just a second. <laughs> Aqueducts. Uh, that brought the water to the various city, cities. But, uh, but even going back older, uh, seeing the, the oldest arched gateway that has ever been discovered, uh, the entry to a city gate from the time of Abraham, made of mud bricks. And yet it's still there. Why is it still there? Because this one stone in the middle holds it all together. And what the Psalms tell us is that Jesus is that stone. He is the one that holds it all together. He is the keystone, the cornerstone. As Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer. He holds it all together. Of course, Psalm 22 describes in great detail the crucifixion. All of the Old Testament points us to the Savior, so much so that uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, puts it this way. It says, uh, it says of the Lord, it is written about me in the scroll of the Messiah. I have come to do your will, God. It's all about him. So Jesus gave them the evidence that he was truly alive, he gave them the ability to understand, to comprehend his word. He reminded them in verse 46 of what he had told them many times before, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. There's a change there. There's a change there. Before Jesus, it was about the Jews. It was a faith for the Jews. And yet here, Jesus tells his disciples, guys, we're going to export this. We're going global. This isn't just for us, but this is something that is going to expand beyond our boundaries and our culture and our language. And it is a message that is to be brought to the whole world. And then he says to them, and I think he would say to us as well, you are witnesses of these things. You know, when you, you, you see something take place, you see something happen, and, and you immediately begin to hear two voices. One that says, keep your head down, don't get involved, move on, you don't have time for this. That's not the right voice. And then there's that voice that says, you're responsible. You've witnessed this. It's time to step in, to step up, to become involved. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples and what he would say to us 
is that those who have encountered the risen Savior, we are obliged to speak truth. Those of us who, who have encountered Jesus, we are obliged to live the rest of our lives as his ambassadors, his messengers, his representatives here. Now, I know, I know for a lot of us, that, that feels intimidating. I mean, this is the point where you're thinking, man, if I get up and leave now, is everyone going to notice? Because I don't like this. Then there she goes. I'm kidding. <laughs> but man, we want to, don't we? When it, we begin to, to be challenged that what we have seen and experienced, we are, we are accountable to to be his representatives here, to, to proclaim what it is that, that, that we have encountered that, that's intimidating. He understands that. And that's why he has given us his Holy Spirit. Look at verse 49, and look, he says, I am sending you what my father promised. Remember those passages where Jesus talks about God as a good father and knows how to give good gifts? He's not talking about stuff. He's talking about his Holy Spirit. He says, as for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you know, I think it would probably be best if you went back inside, locked the doors, and kept your mouth shut until the Holy Spirit comes. <laughs> Things will go much better then. What is he talking about there? Well, back in John 14... Uh, Jesus told his disciples that it was the Holy Spirit that was drawing them towards him. He says he is the spirit of truth and the world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you. He is with you, drawing you to me. And he will be in the future in you, indwelling you. And then as those disciples come to that place later on where they have put their faith in Christ, they have, they have trusted him for their salvation. In John chapter 20, it's really at this time that we read about this transition from the Holy Spirit being with them to the Holy Spirit indwelling or being within them. And it says there that after saying this, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That God's Holy Spirit would not only be with them, but now he would be indwelling them, working in power within them, drawing them to repentance, cleansing them, sanctifying them, working within them. Uh, folks, we, we can't do that. We can't exist as a follower of Christ without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is his mark of ownership upon us. But then to those very same guys that he said, listen, it's the Holy Spirit who has drawn you, and it is the Holy Spirit who now indwells you. Later on, he says to them that the Holy Spirit must come upon them with power. So the Holy Spirit was with them, and then he was within them. And now he is saying in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses. This is the purpose 
for the empowering of the Holy Spirit is that we would be strengthened and enabled to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so finally, we come to verses 50 through 53. It says that he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, so from the city of Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley, up the, the slope of the Mount of Olives, over the top, and just a little bit further to the area of the village of Bethany. And it says, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up to heaven. And after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. So after having given them their task to be his witnesses, which, by the way, that is our task as well. After having given them the ability to do it by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which he has given to you and to me as well, now he blesses them. He blesses them. He prays for them. He prays for God's blessing upon them, which, by the way, is what he is doing now for you. And scripture tells us that, that he lives forever to intercede on our behalf, that that our Savior is continually praying for us. He is aware of our struggles. He is aware of our weakness. He is aware of our break brokenness. And he is praying for us in the midst of our difficulties that we might be empowered to go to this broken world and to share with them about the Savior who has given us new life and new hope and new meaning and new purpose. So here we are. Here we are at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And I usually like when I finish a book to go back and to count um, how many weeks it's been, but I can't count past 27 today. Uh, <laughs> But as I think back through all the time that we have spent together digging through the Gospel of Luke, I, I can't help but to, to wonder, does it matter? Does it matter? Have we been changed? Has it impacted us? Has it done more than swell our brains with information have we been changed by what we have experienced? Well, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for us that like his disciples, that as we have encountered him and as we have come to a, a fuller understanding and awareness of, of who God is and what it is that he has done for us, that we would be moved to worship. That, that understanding more of him and more of what he's done would cause us to just, to just worship him. 
And not only in song, yes, in song, that we would worship him in song, but we would worship him in the living of our lives. But that word worship, it means to reverence, to adore, that we would be reverencing and adoring Jesus in all that we do, in every day of the week, in every moment of our day in every conversation, in every relationship, that they would all be altered because we know who our God is and we know what it is that he has done for us. And that we would live as his ambassadors, his representatives, his messengers to this world. We stand, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, your mercy, your goodness, your kindness to us, your patience with us for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that the things that we read it would not just be information, but God, it, it would change us. God, we invite you, we ask you, be at work within us, draw us close to yourself, Lord, do that work within us of, of convicting us of sin, of freeing us from it, of sanctifying us, setting us aside, apart for you. Lord, that the living of our lives might be an act of worship, of adoration, of reverence for you. And that, God, we might go out, not just today, but every day as your ambassadors, bringing your love and your peace and your hope to this broken world. Work in us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.